American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this podcast, Gregory Downs of City College of the City University of New York speaks to New York City teachers about Henry Adams, a former slave who organized freed people to emigrate to Kansas in 1879. This talk took place on July 19, 2010, at the Graduate Center. And so what I'm going to talk to you about today is what I think is in many ways one of the most interesting, but also in a lot of ways at every level, one of the most difficult time periods to teach, which is Reconstruction. Um, Reconstruction is a challenge because it presents, it doesn't fit into any of the sort of basic storylines that a lot of both students of history and practitioners of history, or of history teaching, or history writing, fall into. In other words, there are stories that are purely stories of triumph, and there are stories that are really stories of oppression and of defeat. And Reconstruction is a strange one, because it's got moments of one and moments of the other. And it's really easy to fall into teaching it in a way that obscures the one, that makes it, that sort of obscures the story of defeat into a story of triumph. Or more consistently, it's easy to turn it in the opposite way and to have it be so purely a story in which the end result, that Reconstruction ends, that in some ways it fails, is the sort of term that scholars over and over use, the failure of Reconstruction, that because it fails, to allow the ending to predetermine the way that we teach it from the beginning, as if its end and failure was preordained, was born within it, and no other outcome was possible. And so it makes it in this sense, you know, both of those are alluring stories, right? They both exist out there as stories that can be told. The first story, the story of the success of Reconstruction, or the triumph of Reconstruction, would be a story of that there's only two places in the Western Hemisphere in which emancipation leads to immediate freedom and enfranchisement, and those are Haiti and the southern United States. That's it. So that's a story of a spectacular expansion of voting rights, a spectacular expansion, a sort of almost unprecedented expansion of rights. The more common story, the failure story, is a story of what happens 12, 13, 14 years later, which is the, and in some cases 20, 25, 30 years later, depending upon the state, but the retraction of, the vo of those voting rights. This great cutting back of democratic promise, disfranchisement, segregation, Jim Crow, um, the growth of the South that'll become familiar to people by the early 20th century, a South of sharecroppers, of extremely low voter participation, of a hard series of segregation, of public violence and lynchings and so on. And that, that story is also a powerful story. What's interesting about Reconstruction is that both stories are true. And figuring out how both stories can be true and figuring out what it means to think of a moment that has such incredible promise and also such an extraordinarily painful, um, disappointing outcome, I think is really a hard thing to teach, but an interesting thing to teach, because it opens up. It opens up possibilities to talk to people about what it is to students, about where it is that moments of promise come from, and why it is that they fade. And that we can take seriously the possibilities of what existed in Reconstruction at the beginning, without pretending that those possibilities don't go away. And that similarly, we can talk about the ways that those possibilities get cut back at the end without pretending that there weren't moments of fluidity early on. And so to me, it's a sort of a 
always a difficult thing to teach at almost any level, but a really interesting thing to teach because it throws open a lot of questions. Rather than a storyline that sort of carries its way on a single track, it's a story that throws open a lot of questions. And questions that I think you know, lead to kind of tensions, complications, challenges that continue to shape the nation, that continue to shape the way that politics is organized and what's possible and what's not. What I want to talk to you about um, in Reconstruction is about understanding this, this period, which classically, some people started in the wartime, some people started with the close of the war, but classically covers the period from the emancipation of slaves into sometime between 1876, a really classic end of Reconstruction, with a presidential election that involved the compromise in which the Republican Party agrees to pull troops from the South in order to uh, obtain the presidency in this disputed election, like a 2000 Gore-Bush election on steroids, where nobody can say, you know, who won. And, uh, you know, they agree to this compromise that ends classically Reconstruction in the South. Or for other people, Reconstruction ending more gradually in the 1890s to the early 1900s with the completion of disfranchisement and the erection of a very narrowly based societies of segregation, Jim Crow in the South. So what I want to do is to look at what happens if we think of that period with a highlight upon the things that they at the Social History Project worry about and think about and try and help you to convey to your students, which is what was the role of regular people of, you know, these are sort of all fraught terms, but what was the role of grassroots politics in shaping both its potential, but also in shaping its decline? And thinking about looking at the lives of workers, of sort of, you know, non-elite actors as playing a key role in blowing up Reconstruction and making it somehow mean something more than anybody expected it to. And the sort of first part of the story, the story that most people find exciting or interesting or hopeful to teach, that something that looked like it was going to be small, all of a sudden, to many people's surprise, turned out to be big. But also to thinking about the ways that grassroots politics or everyday people participated in the opposite, in the incredible constraints put on Reconstruction at the end. And so that rather than, it's very alluring, I think, to teach the story as grassroots politics makes it big and the cutting off of grassroots politics makes it small, but in an interesting way, Reconstruction really presents us with something else that I think is an opening but a dilemma, which is that if an interest in grassroots politics can show us how the people can play a role in making society expand, it can also show us how sometimes at the grassroots level is the basis where some of the reactionary forces or where some of the forces that will pull back also aren't always imposed from above but sometimes are themselves generated among different groups, but different groups of working people or laboring people. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. When I talk about it, I want to start with a long story because I think it's an amazing story. And I think it is a kind of story that you can teach because it opens up things, but it's also extremely complicated, but it does have this biographical line. And that I think is amazing for the ways that it shows how many twists and turns there are in Reconstruction. Because I think the other thing that Reconstruction can help us with is to do what historians always worry about, which is sequence. That while it can be tempting to look backward on the past and to take things out of their context and to see things happening solely in a sort of timeless moment in which you're really evaluating people morally, one of the things that's interesting is how much sequence matters. How people who don't believe one thing at one moment, 12 months later, events have shifted their views. That sequence shows us how, in some senses, how things change, other than just sort of a personal revelation, but how things change. How is it that events can 
transpiring around people, help lead them to make shifts. So that's the other thing I think that's amazing about this story is what it tells us about how one very clear, thoughtful person is making very different judgments at different moments of reconstruction, not because he loses will or energy or you know, uh, has you know, delusions, but because he's reading the world around him a little differently because the world around him is different at different moments. And so this is a story about the education of Henry Adams. Some of you may know from you know, joyful experience, or more likely at this point, not very joyful experience, that there is a book called The Education of Henry Adams. How many of you have read that? There we go. A very different book than what I'm going to describe to you. That book is a um, backward-looking memoir. Henry Adams is the uh, scion of the Adams family of Massachusetts, uh, the grandson and great-grandson of politicians of John Adams, John Quincy Adams, uh, the son of another uh, distinguished ambassador, vice president, um, and one of the first professional American historians, professor at Harvard, leaves it. Um, becomes a writer and grows increasingly skeptical about the United States and its future over the late 19th, early 20th century and becomes increasingly skeptical about modern society. And so the education of Henry Adams is sort of about that, how he got educated toward giving up. Uh, that's a very crude, you know, uh, the, you know, that's a very crude representation of it. Um, and the Henry Adams I'm going to talk to you about, though, is quite a different character. And in many respects, his story is about the miraculous ways that people cannot give up, even as certain avenues get closed, and about the ways that they can make different types of judgments. So this Henry Adams and his education, I'm going to start with one of the things that comes toward the end. 1880, 36-year-old former slave named Henry Adams goes in front of a United States Senate committee. The committee is investigating the migration in 1879 of it's hard to get an exact number, but something on the order of tens of thousands of former slaves, mostly from Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, to Kansas, and to lesser degrees, Oklahoma. So Senate committee, they take an enormous amount of interest in this. Now, the reasons for their interest we'll talk about. They have particular reasons for their interest. But they collect 1,700 pages of testimony, testimony much of which you can find online thanks to Google Books, including the entire testimony of Henry Adams, which is fascinating. So they take an enormous amount of testimony from an amazing range of people. In other words, you kind of assume there's sort of a predetermined cynicism that people have that when you look back, you're going to be hearing from the you know, grand exalted leader of this organization and the grand exalted leader of that organization. And yet, amazingly, you read this testimony from a variety of committees in the 1870s up through the 1890s. And there are really people coming on, and there are certain very famous leaders, but there's also people coming in, and they're like, I'm a sharecropper, I work you know, a few acres of land. And the questions they get are amazingly wide-ranging, from the very sympathetic to the very antagonistic, for the simple reason that, like in any political committee, there's people on one side of a political fence and on the other, and they're trying to use these, you know, these witnesses um, to buttress their position, to build up the ones who the senators agree with, and to tear down the ones that they disagree with. But they're fighting themselves as senators on the committee. And so that creates some moments of real openness, where one side starts bringing in and trying to pack the, pack the hearings. So Henry Adams comes in to talk about it. And he tells them a story that, for a long time, scholars were extremely dubious of. There is no question 
that there is a natural human tendency for people at moments when they're say, asked, why are you important, to maybe inflate the answer a little bit, right? You know, that especially in an era before Google searches, if somebody said, you know, they wrote five books and it turned out they wrote two, who would know, right? You know, there's a natural human tendency for people to sort of let some air in when they're asked why you were important. And some of the things that Henry Adams said were so amazing that people just assumed, well, it can't be true. And then, starting in the 70s, a scholar named Nell Irvin Painter uh, wrote a book about the Exodusters um, and uh, then updated a couple of other times um, in, the, uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, in which a remarkable amount of it does seem to have been true. Henry Adams said, I am the leader of an organization of 100,000 people. Now, 100,000 people is a pretty big organization. Not if you're starting a, a Facebook campaign to protest Facebook or something, right? Then you can get like a million people in your organization in a second. But if you're trying to start an organization like he's talking about, in 1870s, an organization of black people in 1870s Louisiana and Mississippi, 100,000 people is a lot of people to reach, right? Think about the communication problem, right? No phone, barely, their telegraphs exist, but there's barely telegraph service to these things. They're going out and getting people one-to-one, -one, going from little town to little town in one of the most agrarian societies in the world in which there's no major cities to collect people up other than New Orleans, which in some ways he's very skeptical of or fearful of. He says, I am the leader of a group of 100,000 people. And what they want to do is they send out a group of people to investigate how were things actually, right? They're hearing rumors. What was going on in this part of the South? What was going on in this part of the South? How were things, what was actually happening at these key moments when looking back, historians would call the end of Reconstruction? And he said, and we sent out one group of people and said, if we go to Virginia or North Carolina, will that be better? And they go out and they travel there, right? They send out other people and they go to Kansas. And they're like, if we go to Kansas, how will that be? Another group of people is writing to an old, almost defunct organization called the American Colonization Society started by slave owners like Henry Clay early in the 19th century to emancipate slaves but send them to Liberia. And that played a key role in the founding of Liberia, a sort of solution to the problem of slavery um, by Whiggish slave owners that said, you know, the way to end slavery is to move slaves back to Africa. Never again, it was in such an enormous, it was never a politically popular position on any side of the equation. And it was such an enormously expensive uh, proposition that it never got that far. But thousands of people were sent. Most African Americans in the period of slavery and after resisted this idea that they, you know, I'm born in America, I'm here, I don't, you know, I'm not going back. But there were certain people, especially slaves, um, where they would say, you can stay in slavery, or if you let us buy you out, then we'll send you to Liberia, to where that seemed like a, like a proposition. But in the war, when Lincoln considers funding the Colonization Society, a group of ministers, black ministers in DC, come in and say they're not going to go. Right? They're born here, their lives are here, their families are here, their peoples are here. But after the war, during Reconstruction, Adams and other freed people start to say, maybe this isn't our place. And to write to the Colonization Society, which at this point is just a couple of secretaries in Boston, and to say, you know how you used to not be able to get people to go? Well, we've got tens of thousands of people who are thinking about it. What can you do for us? and this sort of strange aftermath of the colonization society history, which is that when they were powerful, they didn't have people. And in the moments when they're fading and almost about to shut down, there gets this resurgence of interest among Southern, or this first surgence of interest among Southern black people, led by Adams. All of these petitions and so on are all saved in DC, 
And this is some of the things that convinced Painter and Steve Hahn and others of how accurate Adams was. You can go through and see the names on the petitions and start to count up. I don't especially advise you to count to 100,000. Um, but you can start to see that it builds up really quickly, individual names and individual places. And he says, the story that he tells is he says, it's an amazing story, but it's also in some ways a very telling story. It's amazing because he's an unusual character. He's an unusual figure for any group of people at any time. He was an organizer who can put together 100,000 people without social networking. That's a, that's a hard skill for anybody to have. He was a faith healer who was credited with healing people across Louisiana and in parts of Mississippi. Um, and who at times talks about this sort of tension in which he's trying to run out the door to go to these meetings, and there's another group of people there saying, we want you to heal so-and-so who's got uh, some sickness. And he's also, at the same time, an extraordinarily successful businessman. And so he's got these sort of complex motives, these complex skills. He had been born a slave in Georgia. During slavery, he got not recognized by law, but recognized by many of the people around him, ownership of property, which was something that scholars have increasingly found was sort of recognized not ever by law. By law, slaves being property could not own property, but was recognized in fact on many plantations, not all, but where certain slaves, or more likely even certain slave kin groups, would acquire some sort of use right over um, different pieces of property, often farm animals. Now, could a owner take it back from him? Absolutely. Under the law, everything belongs to the owner. But in a, in, a, in a way, in many plantations, there was some fluidity about what it was that a slave could claim ownership of. And an owner who's trying to manage a group of hundreds of slaves might decide that if one kin group of 50 or 60 of, of people, cousins and so on, can claim ownership of certain parts of the property, and in that sense, stay invested in the plant, invested the wrong way, but stay focused on the plantation in a way that it became a way of buying off different, in some ways, of buying off different groups of slaves. Adams acquires, even for that tiny group of people who do this, an amazing amount of property. Three horses, a buggy, a carriage to drive, and a good deal of money in gold and silver. And he uses it in the period after emancipation to go around, he goes to Shreveport, so the big town, such as it is in North Louisiana, to go to Shreveport and to start a variety of businesses. He's hired to manage plantations for people. He's hired to manage wood mills for people. He's investing. He buys a good deal of property, $1,500 worth of personal property of homes and land in Shreveport, which is a great deal for 1870s. And he also begins peddling. He goes around the state and he's buying and selling things. And as he does that, he has this amazing chance to learn about conditions across the state because he's moving around all the time. And then in an era before, there's widespread, there are newspapers in the South, but not that many. They're not that well distributed. And in an era before the kinds of communications we take for granted, these people who are moving around are the people who are actually able to accumulate knowledge, information. And as he's moving around, he comes back to these sets of ideas, these sets of observations that throughout the South, throughout Louisiana at first and later throughout the South, that certain things are happening over and over. That the black codes, which we'll talk about in a minute, passed by the state legislators right, legislatures right after the war, are aiming to recreate something so akin, very akin to slavery. 
without the prevention of marriage or without forced sale of people, but in every other way to recreate as much of slavery as they could on these plantations. That black laborers are being beaten, that they're being defrauded, they're being forced to sign contracts that, um, that are defrauding them and that are illegal. They're not able to negotiate. They're not able to go from place to place. They're being whipped on the roads. And he comes back with this sense of, of what's going on, and he joins the Union Army. So unlike a lot of slaves who joined the Union Army in the 1862 or 1863, he joins after the war. Serves in the Union Army as a collector of intelligence, again traveling around, and he's also not surprisingly, given the other skills he has, he's the quartermaster. He's the manager of supplies for, for the Union Army in Louisiana because it's extraordinary talent that he has. Again, collects information. Comes out of the Union Army in 1869, 1870 into Shreveport and starts using the money that he's accumulated to buy property, to set up business, and also he and a bunch of other Union veterans who come out create what they call the committee. It's only open to black male veterans, 50 or 60 of them. And in fact, many of them, almost all of them, unlike our vision of who are the sort of political leaders of Reconstruction, of these high status people who had been north, lived in the north before the war, or had been free in the south before the war. This is almost exclusively rural people, almost exclusively those who had been slaves, and many of whom, like Henry Adams, only learned to read in the army in the 1867, 1868, 1869. So something much closer to on the ground. They say they don't want to be, they don't trust politicians. Well, see, they believe in politics, but they don't trust politicians. And not only do they not trust white politicians, or they certainly don't trust white southern politicians, which seems very understandable, they also don't trust black politicians. Some of this has to do with the power of New Orleans and Louisiana. And so they say, we don't want to become a tool of them. We want to keep control of our organization. And this committee then systematically starts to travel through the South and to come up and to say, we don't know if we have a future here in Louisiana. Where can we go? And these start to become the seedlings of what will develop later in the, in the decade into this, into this exodus. It, are things better in the Upper South? What do people say if we go to Tennessee or North Carolina? What is going on? They start to collect lists of what's going on. Where are people being attacked? At the same time, People in and around Shreveport, ex-Confederates, start to realize, even though he's not making an effort to be that much of a public prominent person, he never runs for office, start to realize the threat that Adams poses. And when he's renting houses, um, the landlords go to the, go to the local planners, go to his landlords and say, either kick him out or we're going to burn your house. When he gets jobs, they go to the plantations and they say, this guy is trouble. Get rid of them, or we're going to shut down your plantation. This is partly what drives Adams to then say, I'm going to buy my own house and see what they do. I'm going to start my own businesses, see what they do. He stopped on the road, and a group of men threatened him and say, either leave Louisiana or we're going to kill you. And he says, why talk in the future tense? Let's do it right now. Right? He's you know, an unusually brave person. He says, let's, let's go. And they, 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 they go away. He's also, so his personal experience is confirming what he's seeing in other people. This committee grows from 50, 60, 500 of a special sort of internal committee. And they have this interesting relationship with politics. They don't want their members to run for high office. They don't think that in the end those sort of politicians are looking out for them. But they do believe that politics matters a lot. This is a sort of interesting duality. They work for the Republican Party, the party 
that had overseen emancipation, the party that was the party of the North, the party that was the hated enemy of the Confederate plantation owners, so even if it wasn't perfect, this sort of enemy of my enemy must somehow be closer to my friend. They work with them, they register people, sometimes they let their members run for low-level office. But they say in Washington, that's something distract, you know, the, the, running, the politicians running for these high offices are losing track of us. And we're going to keep focused on what we're doing on the ground. So they participate in this. And over the course of the 1870s, while they're being, while they're being intimidated, they start to come to the conclusions uh, that some of the things that they had hoped would be true in Louisiana were not going to be true that much longer. And this helps us to sort of something else I'll come back to in a few minutes of how to understand sequence and chronology. That Adams never has a belief that some panacea, some utopia had been invented by emancipation. He never says, I thought at the end it was going to be perfect. It was a Camelot, and then it didn't last. But he does say, even though people are getting whipped and beaten and cheated, some things were still possible in the 1860s. And there were things that people could build on. And in retrospect, scholars a great deal think this is true. There are people who are accumulating property. Uh, black people, former slaves, even illiterate former slaves who are starting to accumulate bits of property in the 1860s and early 1870s. Sometimes at really surprising rates. Doesn't mean that it was that way for the majority of people, but there are these sort of possibilities that are being opened. And in the eight, starting in the early 1870s, he says, and then they start to close. And the way they start to close in Louisiana, which will seal echo, and with some differences, what we're going to see is the story of the entire South, is through an organization, an organized violent response to these manifestations of black power that goes from black political power, that goes from these sort of isolated people stopping a Henry Adams on the road, to a much more systematic set of committees themselves with their own grassroots way of mobilizing ex-Confederates, especially ex-Confederate soldiers, especially, um, although often founded by sort of high-ranking officers, especially effective at mobilizing low-level Confederate privates and so on, into much more systematic tools where they're not worried about scaring one person or another, but figuring out how do we take control back? How is it that they can reassert the power of the ex-planter class, especially through the state Democratic Party. And so, in a series of famous massacres, especially the Colfax Massacre, where a group of white Republicans and black Republicans go inside a courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana, um, in order to claim what they say has been a stolen election, the white leagues and the white lines, these sort of later manifestations of the impulses that earlier created the Ku Klux Klan, gather around uh, with guns and say, we're going to shoot you out. The Republicans inside, white and black, look out, count numbers, decide they're not going to be, you know, uh, martyrs to history and say, you know, this is, this, is, this is it. We can't win this fight. Wave white flags, march out, and are shot down. And the, then many of them, including elected officers, you know, the town officials, um, as I say, both white and black. Adams is watching all of these things and saying, if this is the weight that's going to come here, where's going to be the counterweight? People on his committee are saying, as, as soon as this happens, they say, how can there be a future here? And he says, let's wait one more year. He says, 1876 is presidential election year, and let's see what's going to happen before we give up on, on, on this, right? We've got, 
you know, these people, you know, many of them, you know, he was born in Georgia, but many of these people are born in Louisiana and Mississippi. They have huge extended families. He says, you know, let's, let's see if we can get some counter pressure. And in 1876, instead of things seeming to, you know, to get a counterweight, he comes out of that even more pessimistic. That he sees an extraordinary use of political violence in places like Louisiana and Mississippi, of these white leagues and white lines to put them down, to put down these organizations. He sees a National Republican Party that under Grant had sent people, not that Grant is any sort of idyllic type or an ideal, um, you know, or certainly not a racial egalitarian, but he hated disorder. And so when people would send him petitions saying things are getting, um, you know, things are getting out of hand down here, he believed in the army. He would send the army down, not as often as people wanted, but sometimes. But he sees in 1876 this is coming to an end. The Democrats are in control here, and the Republicans in D.C. are saying, let us have peace. Let's put all this behind us. 1878, he watches one more election to see if things will get better. When they don't, then 1879, they create this organization of 100,000 people to start this migration to Kansas. And this movement will create some of the things that then scholars later studied of the all-black towns in places like Kansas and Oklahoma, of whole townships that pick up and move from parts of the South and that move into these places in the Great Plains. Obviously never enough to be a majority or anything like it of a state of Kansas. Um, but an important part of the, the, the post-emancipation life, of this impetus to move. The Adams story and the people he's connected with aren't the whole story of Reconstruction. But I think they touch upon several things that are really interesting and important about the era. One of the things they touch upon is the importance of organization. We'll come and I'll sort of now you know, go through these on a more national or at least regional level. So what's going on across the South Rim and Asia? That organization really matters, that people are organizing early, and they're organizing to get information and to try and put people together in a way that's going to make a difference, that's, that's going to uh, have an impact. The second thing that the story is going to indicate is that there are these moments of rise and fall, that it's not a single, here's hope, here's despair but that there's a thousand little moments where people are judging. And they don't have our, what we have, right? They don't know how the story is going to end. And so in the midst of it, there are a thousand moments where they're saying, things look this way, but like Adam saying, you know, I don't see much hope, but do I want to watch one more, you know, wait a little longer before I determine the end? Or I see all this hope, but do I want to be a little cautious before I think this is really going to last? That they're making, they don't know in the end, these end, these end results that we know. And capturing that sense that, so his story also captures for us the sense of how much fluidity, how much uh, movement that's possible, how much it is that, that people are making different judgments at different times, and how much of what's going to happen seems to them to be contingent. In other words, not predetermined, something scholars worry about a lot, that, that things you know, seem up in the air to them. They may be wrong. We may, with historical you know, accuracy, be able to look back and say, here things, they were wrong. Here they thought there was hope, but hope had actually walked out the door two years before. But many of them, like Adams, have a sense of contingency, that everything is not yet totally predetermined. Even if they know, they know much more clearly than any of us could, because they're seeing it, even if they know all the reasons to be skeptical or suspicious or doubtful, that there's also these, these openings of how is this going to happen? And when is it that the moment that the light starts to turn out for people. 
For what people is it in 1870? And what people is 1876? And for what group of people is it really not till the 1890s or the early 1900s when you really see segregation and disfranchisement come in? Another thing that it'll suggest to us that I'll you know, walk through how it's become important nationally is that it's met by, and it meets its downfall, in large part, if this is a sort of enormous organization of freed people, what beats it is also an enormous organization. And this is an enormous organization, largely built up of ex-Confederate ranks. Early on, in other parts of the South, through the Ku Klux Klan, which I'll talk about, and then by 1874 and 1875, through these white leagues and white lines, to claim local power. And that these groups are also extremely organized, and in some way, and in some uncomfortable way, also grassroots groups, if also different parts of the grassroots, obviously, aiming to claim local power for the Democratic Party, for the ex-planter class, for the ex-Confederates. And that what comes out of this is a politics that's highly organized and what some scholars call a paramilitary politics, in which we want to think about politics not just as sort of going and voting, because it was never going to be that simple, as Adams knows. When he goes to vote for the first time in 1870, there's you know, white liners there with guns, and they say, you know, they're telling everybody, if you vote Republican, we're going to fire you, and if you tell other people to vote Republican, we're going to shoot you. And so what he and increasingly large numbers of other people do is they arrive with their own guns. And that what goes on at ballot places one well-known scholar, Julie Seville, says, is not a recording of an opinion, but something like a fight in which there's a thousand small wars of who's going to control this precinct enough to say, we can come in. And that this is not going to be decided by ideas, but in some level by force. And the final thing that the Adams story is going to suggest to us that's going to be an important part of how historians understand Reconstruction is to understand the relationship between Reconstruction and the political possibilities then, and the outcome of and the thing that's going to come later in the period, in most parts of the South, which is the migration. That the next, if the sort of you know classic trajectories of African American history are Reconstruction, then Jim Crow, then migration, not to Kansas, not to Liberia, but to Chicago, to Harlem, to Philadelphia, later to Detroit, to Cleveland of the, how these stories are interrelated, what it was about political power that gave people hope in the South, and what it was about taking back this political power that gave people a sense that they might not, even if it was the place that they were born and the place that their families were, that it might not be sustainable, and how this is related to how they saw themselves. Broadly, stepping from the micro story of Henry Adams gathering up these plantation workers to the sort of macro story, the story that historians have argued about, one of the things that's, that's most remarkable about Reconstruction is that almost nobody saw it coming. At the beginning of the war, there was largely a strong sense among Northern Republicans that the war would lead to some way the elimination of slavery. But many of them thought 
that this might go the same way that slavery had been eliminated everywhere else in the Western Hemisphere up to that point. Cuba and Brazil still have slavery. But everywhere else in the Western Hemisphere, except for Haiti, which is you eliminated slavery gradually. It's what England did in their colonies. It's what every northern state did. You had a period of a gradual emancipation. You said children born after a certain date would be free at age 25. And over, you know, Lincoln said, you know, decades, maybe a century, slavery would cease to exist. It actually turns out that in many places, not New Jersey because of some complicated ways, but in many places things happen faster than that simply because once slavery drops to a small enough proportion of the population, um, then there start to be, then they sort of revise the laws to speed it up. That it, it sort of doesn't make sense to have a state premised around having 20 or 30 or 100 slaves, to have state laws orchestrated in that way. But that's what everybody thinks is going to happen. That shifts over the course of the war for things you've talked about in other sessions. And there gets this, um, this shocking movement toward immediate emancipation. So by the end of 1865, with the passing of the 13th Amendment, emancipation is a fact, a legal fact, even if the way it actually appears to people varies a lot on the ground depending upon people who go to Union camps early in 1861 through 1862, or for other people who experience it after the Emancipation Proclamation and once Sherman starts marching armies through, through other people who find out about it months after the end of the war, most famously commemorated in the Juneteenth celebrations in Texas where people find out about emancipation months after the close of the war at Appomattox. But almost nobody thinks that this is going to lead to serious political rights. There's a division between who, who's free and who can vote. The most obvious reason that we know this is true is right, women are free, they can sue, but at this point, no women can vote. This will actually be opened up in some parts of, uh, of, of Reconstruction. 19 of the 24 northern states all the northern states have eliminated slavery, well, except for the border states. But in 19 of the 24 states, blacks can't vote. In other words, this is a model that exists, that freedom doesn't mean voting even for men. In no northern state, by, in 1860, some of this had been different earlier in the era, could blacks serve on juries. So there's this capacity, this openness toward the idea of what freedom is that's different than what political rights are. It's different than what it means other forms of citizenship, especially voting, jury participation, these things. And most people think things are going to go in some way like this. And they don't. And understanding this swing is one of the sort of ways of understanding the first part of the story of where it is that moments of, of openness come in. To quickly walk through how this could happen, I want to quickly tell you a sense of that what we can understand going on early in Reconstruction are arguments about what freedom is. That, as I said, you can imagine a northern public opinion that scholars sum up through a kind of what they call a free labor ideology that says that society is built upon people working to improve their condition. And this is good for society, even if not all people, even if it doesn't work out for all people. You may try something and fail and go bankrupt and die in the gutter. But on the whole, having a society organized around this kind of small-scale entrepreneurship, the small businessman who owns a home, um, that this is good for society. It promotes you know, kind of energy, a democratic excitement. It breaks up uh, these organizations, that, these, these sort of associations that, that tie, put men underneath uh, each other. Now, it does that by creating these businesses and families where men are, in fact, then put in charge of women, children, apprentices, and so on. So this vision of free labor 
could be sincerely opposed to slavery, that slavery is making society worse, that it's making an inefficient society, and that it's depriving people of the chance to struggle and quite possibly fail, and yet also not equal a kind of egalitarianism that we see now. Um, why is this? Well, in one sense, they had no problem with the idea that people would fail, and those who failed, they might suffer. I mean, there are charitable organizations, but there's nowhere like the kind of safety net that we talk about now. At the same time that they're saying we need to have this free labor system, they're also rounding up people off the streets of Boston, white people off the streets of Boston and New York and arresting them for vagrancy and putting them into work camps. So if you're not going to work, they don't, you know, if you, in whatever way they define it, if you don't have a job, you're a criminal. If you're a criminal, you can be put to work. They're deny the vote. If you lose your home, a white man in New York City loses his home, loses his right to vote. So there's these associations that they have of what freedom means. And there's also, as we said, from things like voting rights, jury rights, this sense of a, of a even among committed anti-slavery northerners, of a great reservoir of prejudice, skepticism, racism toward African Americans. That can they ever move from this group of vagrants, of people that they're associating um, with not being fully part of society up to the top? And there's a great deal of sort of, of this intermixed in within northern free labor ideology. So you get what can seem to us like a paradox of people who genuinely hate slavery but have no belief in racial egalitarianism. And that strikes us as sort of odd from our perspective, that these things must be hand in hand. But when you look at the North, that this is actually very common. How did white planners and ex-Confederates see freedom? Well, they saw freedom as like everything except, you know, ex everything that they could get away with, in other words. The freedom, they said the whole society is going to be built upon running big plantations. The only thing in the South is good for is cotton. Cotton, unlike wheat, doesn't work in small farms. So we have to reproduce the conditions of slavery that led us to grow cotton as quickly as we can. And so they go through, and in the period right after the war, they pass what's famously called the Black Codes. And the Black Codes say things like, they go through the state laws and they say, everywhere it says slave, replace with the word black man. So it used to say slaves can't go out without a pass. Now it said black people can't go out without a pass. It used to say slaves uh, you know, can't you know, uh, leave their plantation. Now black people can't leave their plantation. They recognize it's become impossible to prevent. They can't sell people. And they recognize they can't prevent marriage. But they're like, everything other than that, we can reproduce as quickly as we can. And that's what they're pushing for. And that seems to take hold right after the war. That in a lot of the plantations in the 1865, early 1866, this seems to be what's happening. People are coerced into, into these exploitative contracts. They're, you know, uh, they're whipped. They're beaten. They seems to have the sanction of law. Occasionally, they can go to Freedmen's Bureau officers or northern military people. But they're often a long way away. Even if they're sympathetic, they might be 100 miles away, people going by foot or by horse. And even if they get an order from them, they can't make it felt. And so this, is, this seems like the end of Reconstruction before it's begun. Emancipation, but nothing else. And, but nothing else. It opens up in this early period, in part because of a third definition of freedom that comes from among the freed people, which is a vision that what freedom should include is something more than just literally the legal right to not be sold and the right to marry. They thought those things were important. right? Obviously, they think those things are important, but not sufficient. 
And this prompts the kinds of grassroots move movements that we see early in the 1866 and the 1867, of people who say it should include, what you'll read about this afternoon, a right to land. Right, this sort of common thing, common right, a very American, also a very global desire to have small farms, right, land of their own. They're saying it should include some political rights. It should include, um, and these political rights should be much more open-ended. They move into these organizations like the Union League that start in New York and Philadelphia as these organizations of sort of high-tone, fancy uh, businessmen, and they turn them into their own organizations in the South that say, you know, we're going to create our own constitutions, our own patterns, our own ways of understanding what freedom should be. And in this period of Reconstruction, it's the interaction between these three, when it is that one vision of freedom seems to be paramount and when the others seem to be paramount, that help to produce some of these twists and turns. Now we're going to uh, take a break, a not a break, but stop in just a moment. Um, to talk about some of the documents that you have that give you some examples of where these twists and turns come. And then in question and answer, I'll be glad to talk with you um, about understanding some of the things that happen, how it is that you go from such a closed feeling in 1865 to such a moment of fluidity and openness um, in the late 1860s to this feeling of closeness again by the 1870s. So there's two documents that are going around that'll help us to understand if the Henry Adams story and the Union League and these things help us to understand why things open up early on, the documents going around will help us to understand the flip side, where it goes, what happens to it. So raise your hand. You should have two things, one of which is a cartoon and the other of which is a list of rules that say Southern Democrats declare a dead radical. So let's take a minute and look first at the cartoon comes from Harper's Weekly, 1874, so late in the sequence of Reconstruction. Um, take a minute, look over it, look at the caption, and tell me what you, think, what you think it's about. What's interesting to you about it? What's surprising to you about it? How you might use it as a teacher? Um, you know, what, it, what it does to you, what it does for you. So what's going on in the, uh, in the cartoon? What do you make of this? Yeah, and tell me, start by telling us your name. Christina Ortiz from Monroe High School. Great. Um, well, with the caption and the picture together, it's obvious that you know the federal government is passing these laws, but they're not enforcing them. So it's almost like, what's the point? In the South, obviously, nothing's changing if you know the white man, if no one's enforcing the laws giving African American rights, and it's just you know it's supposed to be there to, as it says, a scarecrow to scare away the white Southerners that would be mean and nasty to African Americans. But obviously, it's not working, just like Scarecrow doesn't really work too much in a foreign field. Yeah, that's good. What else do you get from this? Carla. Uh, Garland from PSIS 155. Um, it also shows that in this caption, they also always generally attack the male. Mm -hmm. Because the male was considered, and still to this day, attack the black or Hispanic male as opposed to the female. And so, as the young lady said over there, uh, we see that it had to, the government, the, the rules had no teeth. Right. Which is what took place in this 1940s and 50s when Eisenhower did not do what he needed to do. Kennedy had to be forced to send right. and those kinds of things. So this is just an early picture displaying uh, laws with no teeth. Right. Not really trying to make it fully 
uh, involve society by all people. Yeah. So a couple things that, uh, that this raises. There are a fair number in reconstruction of attacks upon women. Um, and there's people who are writing about sexual violence and reconstruction, um, about rapes and other forms of sexual assault upon uh, women of color um, during reconstruction. But there is also, especially as things get organized, as these sort of early nebulous movements of uh, you know, sort of whites to attack local people become stitched together into these ex-Confederate organizations. The Klan, early on in the 1860s, 1866 to about 1870, when it's defeated by Grant sending in federal troops into North and South Carolina um, and breaking up the Klan in many of those counties. And then by these white leagues and white lines that are much more organized and they're also much savvier than the Klan had been. They're much more under the control of Democratic Party officials. The Klan wanted the Democratic Party to win, but they're always complaining that they can't, they, yeah, that they've got their own ideas. They're pushing things um, that they're, they're not controllable in the way. The white leagues, the white lines are really getting orders from on high in some ways. And so they're figuring out, they're learning from this Klan experience of how can we get most of what we did with the Klan without getting troops coming in? How is it that you get most, you present in some ways a slightly gentler face without producing the things that are going to create this kind of backlash? The other thing that um, Garland's uh, point suggests is something that both sort of uh, scholars and also just sort of, you know, and also everybody else have always been interested in since the 60s or the late 50s, which is the association between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement, um, which, is, which was called by a lot of scholars, and sometimes you see it in textbooks, a second Reconstruction. Because it seems in some ways the 50s and 60s, um, there's a lot of commonality between the two, right? That there's this sense in which that in both cases, the rights of uh, black people are at the heart of the, there's a lot of fights going on, but this is the, sort of at the heart of the issue. And in both cases, there are these moments at which high-sounding laws get passed. Civil Rights Acts in 1866 and in 1874, and Civil Rights Acts and, and Voting Rights Acts in 1964 and 1965. Um, and that the question in both of them is, will they, be made, will they be enforced? What will it mean? What is it that the law can actually do? But what is it that, where, where are the points where the power of the law fades, where the law can't be enough on its own, and it takes something more than just the law to change how a society is organized? And this goes into the sort of, the things that Garland was talking about, the sort of distinctions between 1954, the Supreme Court says, desegregation of schools in Brown, but 1955, and the second order says with all deliberate speed, and this sense that, oh, it can happen slowly, and this energy fades, and that it's this revival of, and the use of National Guard, and the use of the army, both in the 1860s and 1870s, that defeats the Klan, and it's the failure of the National Army to come in, and later in the 1870s, that allows the White Line and White League to take over, and that this will be repeated, that it's this sort of fight over how much to use the army in the 50s and 60s that'll be at the forefront of saying what is going to take these laws and make them actually applied. Um, so this is a sort of a, a sort of an interesting, there are differences between the eras, but an interesting set of parallels that people see. What else is interesting about the cartoon? Um, Right. Just, you know, you have no authority. 
Right. And why is that interesting? Does that seem surprising? What's interesting about that? I think that's, that's right. That's a good observation. What's well, well, what's interesting about that is that for, um, since the end of the Civil War, for the end of the Civil War and after the Civil War, the Union Army um, had occupied uh, the South and, and um, had the authority. Right. Now that's waning. Right. And the, the Southern... Um, Rebels are feeling more empowered and saying, we're running now. Right. And this is the sort of vision of the retreat, right? A military term, or a surrender. Or the sort of old saying of the North won, you know, won the battles and the South won the war. Um, you know, the, the sense that in some ways there's a sort of dramatic shift in which the people who win the war are no longer able to exert control or no longer willing or whatever combination to exert control. Some ways it's, you know, a difference of what goes on in 1865 and what goes on in 1874. In some ways it seems people are reporting this almost immediately. That if you look through travelers who go through from the north, go through the south late in 1865, they say, you know, almost immediately white southerners or ex-Confederates are saying, this is, you know, we're back in control here. And the reason they say it has to do with things that may be familiar to us from another word um, that Charlin used, which was of occupation, right? Which is these sort of challenges of figuring out what does it take to actually occupy and to make your orders felt. And along with a lot of other things going on in the North, there's also a major Northern sense that, in public opinion, that says when you declare victory, what do you do? Right? What are the soldiers supposed to do at the end? You know, after you have victory, you have the victory parade, right? They go, they march from Richmond, they march from Appomattox to Washington, D.C., they march down the mall at Washington, D.C., and they say, see you later, go home. And the other thing is that you're spending money like crazy in a war. Some of these things won't seem so impossible for us to imagine. Uh, you're spending money like crazy in a war, and people are saying our deficits are out of control, right? Look at the amount of bonds, $3 billion in bonds in 1865 money that the federal government is floating. And we're going to have to pay for this in taxes. Let's cut spending. And they do un unimaginably quick. 800,000 of the million people active in the Union Army in April of 1865 are home by October. In fact, that's an incredible bureaucratic feat. We couldn't you know, send, you know, really get people out of the Army that quickly now. Um, and the federal budget uh, requests of the Navy Department dropped by 90% within one year. And the Army is a little slower, but at incredible rates. So in some of them, there just aren't people left. Um, even if they're willing, there aren't people left. Um, there's another question about how willing the Army might be. You know, I heard another observation. It seems that, that uh, the soldiers, the enemy said, this was mocking the, uh, the Union scarecrow. He, he, he is seeing that, uh, and it's suggested in that way, that the government is not going to enforce right. our actions against uh, taking your rights away. Right. And so, which is swept up in the statement uh, where it says, Within a few years, however, the commitment of, of the great grand administration, including Attorney General W.H. George H. Williams, is to enforce these laws lane. Right. And this is he's clearly demonstrating that. And so it's a man and the lady, you know, children cowering in the corner. Right. So there is the order, 
It's not that there's not anything, but it's not put into effect. And this is also some of the sort of duality of Reconstruction, that it's not a sort of, that there are these moments that seem expansive. Let's go also, where does this appear? So what kind of magazine is Harper's Weekly? It's a magazine of radical, you know, uh, it's a magazine of radical black sharecroppers? No, what kind of, where is it based? New York City, right? Um, it's a sort of, you know, relatively, you know, mainstream, uh, not as conservative as the New York Times was during the era, but not as radical as, as the Tribune or some of the other more radical uh, uh, papers or as the Atlantic Monthly. So it's right in the mainstream. When does this appear? All right. What happens in November in even numbered years? Congressional elections. So it's also interesting. Why do you think this is coming out in Harper's at this time, at this moment? So it's an election year. And so what's it trying to do in the, in the, I mean, so in some ways it's also a part of campaign literature. Even though Harper's is moderate in the vision of the time, it's a solidly Republican magazine at this stage. What's it trying to do? Right. So on the one hand, it records a history of a loss of support. It's also standing to try and counter that, right, to fire people up. The other thing to keep in mind about this key moment of 1874 in the North, why it is that you could get orders that aren't enforced, something else that might be familiar to us happens the year before this, 1873, the Panic of 1873. The panic is sort of, you know, a, a, a word to describe 19th century recessions and depressions, right? Essentially, we can think of what we had here in 2007, 2008 as also a kind of financial panic. So it starts with a, with a credit run. It starts actually with the failure of real estate markets in, in, in Austria that have been financed by, by international banks that have built their credit around it. It spreads over the course of a few years to the United States. It leads to an, a shrinking up of credit. Businesses large and small largely live on credit. Businesses fail if they can't make loans to make the difference between what they have on hand at the end of the month and what they need to pay out. Businesses shut down, including large railroads, the manufacturers that produce for railroads. Unemployment goes from it's hard to estimate in the and it's hard to estimate now. It's very hard to estimate in the 1870s. But it goes from 5, 6, 7% to something like 25%. If that happens, what happens to the party in charge? They lose. And Republicans are in power. They have these huge majorities in 1870 elections, 1872, Grant's reelected in 1872. They're coming into the midterms. Parties in power never do well in midterms in, uh, in the United States, with very few exceptions, 2002. Uh, but they never do well in midterm elections. And coming into 1874, they're already doing badly, and the economy collapses, and they're in for a rout. And some of this rout has to do with a lack of patience for what's going on in the South, and some of it has to do with these other economic factors. And in 1874, there'll be a huge number of Democrats elected. And even if they ran on other grounds, or they won on other grounds, they come in and they say, Reconstruction is done. We're going to start impeaching. Grant, that doesn't work. We're going to start impeaching his cabinet officers. That does. And things are, are shut down. So this is in part the sort of last-ditch effort to fire, fire people up, to say, you know, this is what's going to be the effect if we don't. It's sort of a get-out-the-vote circular in some ways. 
Now the other document, the Southern Democrats, is also a get out the vote circular, but for a very different type of vote. So take a moment, if you, some of you have already read it or started to read it, take a moment and, and read over this, and we'll try and figure out what to, you know, what do you make of this. So what's interesting, what jumps out at you about this, about the, the, the South Carolina plan? Uh, I mean, yes, it's a definite plan. I mean, it's the same plan that was used in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Right. Or not 60s, well, even to some extent in the 60s for certain states in the South. And it goes all the way back. Right. It's about enforcement. Right. They wanted to ensure the persons that they wanted elected who would facilitate their program get elected. Right. And the way to do that is to stop those people who were willing to vote, and in many cases during that time were overpopulated for many of the whites in some of those counties. Right. So you would have more greater votes in particular for right. the Republicans to win as opposed to the Democrats. Right. And we think about especially the post-Brown response of uh, white opponents of, uh, of desegregation, we call massive resistance. This theory that if you pushed hard enough, right, if you responded massively, Eventually, the federal government would crumble. Eventually, that it wasn't going to be a question of convincing people or even of finding allies. In a way, it's a, it's a very skeptical view of, uh, you know, of, 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 of finding supporters in the North. But it's saying they're not going to have the will. Right? It's saying test the will as much as you can, and, it'll, and the will will crumble. In some ways, there's a lot of overlap of what goes on from the early, late 1860s with the founding of the Klan, but then sort of uh, the Klan is, is put out by the federal government, but then revised in 1874, 1875, white leagues, white lines, red shirt campaigns, the 1880s, 1890s in different parts of the South to drive blacks from voting and to assert democratic control. There are some ways in which it's a very similar question. It's sort of what are you going to do about it? in some ways more savvy than what goes on with massive resistance because they're more careful after seeing the Klan to avoid what they see as the sort of hot spots that'll create too much of a demand. In this sense, they're more careful than someone like Bull Connor, right? This is the sort of lesson they learn from the Klan, that if you push, if you create a scene, which in the South happens early in Reconstruction in Memphis, where the Memphis police force and a group of Democratic politicians um, go on a rampage after being insulted by a black Union soldier um, and massacre 40 or 50 um, black and people and a few whites in Memphis or in New Orleans where a group of black and whites meet together to recall the state constitutional convention in the summer of 1866 and as will happen with Colfax later the whites gather outside and shoot them as they come out that if you in a city Right? Think about Bull Connors in Birmingham. Right? The South is a very rural place, but people's attention goes to cities. And if you create too much of a fight in a city, and you draw too much attention, that it could still happen. But if you figure out how to disperse it, nobody can keep in mind. They get these lists of thousands of things happening in these small counties and places nobody's ever heard of. It's harder for, to keep that in mind. So it's a much savvier strategy than the sort of Bull Connor with dogs and, and water hoses, um, or than the Klan had been. Right. Um, that's the most striking thing throughout the war. Um, uh, military organization, um, bending the, the, the Constitution to 
achieve an end in 11 and 14, treat them like the enemy, to try to use reason, and in 16, shoot to kill. Yeah. And so, so where do you... fascinating considering that this is toward a, 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 a democratic legal right. process. Right. Or legal end. Right. This is, yeah, it sort of goes to the sort of idea of politics as warfare by another means, which can generally be true. But why would this specifically be true in the 1870s? Why would these people be responding to people reading a circular among a Democratic Party in the 1870s be especially attuned to the language of warfare? Do you think? What were they? They're mostly veterans, right? There's some people, right? There's a small generation of people who are coming of age in the late 1860s, 1870s. And some of them are running to join these organizations. And for some of them, it'll be their path to power. They missed the Civil War, and so they say, I'm going to join with the, you know, my Confederate older brothers and show that I'm part of this by, by fighting these things. But a lot of them are these Union veterans, uh, Confederate veterans who go right, you know, they're sent home. They organize locally, right? They're, they're, they had mustered up in these small towns. They go to the Confederate Army. They're sent home. They go back to their town. But they've got this whole network, right? They've got this whole military experience and also the people around them. And it's very easy to convert, you know, in this sense, it's about who calls the end of the war, right? If it feels like war. Um, and there's been a lot that's made. For years, scholars said that one of the striking things of the Civil War was at the end of the war, um, Lee is sort of going through different, Robert E. Lee is going through different possibilities for the Confederacy and it's, as, it, as it, you know, enters the spring of 1865 and defeat seems inevitable. And Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, is like, we're going to fight you know, no matter what. He flees the South. He comes up with this plan that he's going to get to Mexico, and they're going to recreate the Confederacy in Mexico, and then invade the United States, and so on. And he says, and then we'll have 1,000, even if they capture our armies, we'll have 1,000 guerrilla warfare. Right? You know, that'll be, you know, we'll have guerrilla warfare throughout the South. And Lee says, this is madness. And, he said, and this is part of one of the things that goes on in the Confederacy, is that the generals stop obeying the president not because they're egalitarians, but because this is not the way that they see the war. And so they do these surrenders that Davis doesn't approve of. Davis flees, trying to get to Mexico, is eventually captured. Historians said, well, Lee and Johnston, who surrendered the largest army of the war a few weeks after Lee, prevented a guerrilla war. But what scholars have gotten much more interested in the last 40 or 50 years is that even if they didn't go around wearing the Confederate uniforms, although a lot of them did, that they didn't that there was a guerrilla warfare going on in large parts of the South. And that even if they didn't have this full hierarchy, that what we can imagine, this paramilitary politics, is in some ways another word for a military warfare in which, a guerrilla warfare in which every once in a while you hold elections. Do you have a question? Yeah, there's one, number 14 seems like it's one uh, where it's uh, hard to imagine this strategy being used for the war. Treat them so as to show them you're Right. Like only after the war could, in the, in the circumstances of Reconstruction, could, right. could uh, whites have to remind other whites. Right. So right, and slavery would have seemed a matter of law, a matter of fact, right? Yeah. There must be some assertion on the part of blacks. Absolutely. Which yeah. That's a good question. Why do you think so? I don't actually. Um, focus on different tasks or something. Yeah, 
that's an interesting question. We can guess. What do you think? I just guess that they would be the ones that would be sent out. Right. The the Could be, right? The mobility. Energetic responsibility. Right. How do you combine the knowledge of the more experienced person with the strategy Right. Yeah. The, yeah. You had mentioned that they didn't want to ad, like uh, advertise the killing, but did you like did it say like sixteen the necessity the time required right. that you should die? Right. Would they kill him right there at the voting? Right. Absolutely. I mean, they're yeah. It's an interesting, no, it's a good question. I mean, one of the things they learn, although Colfax shows that, that you know, was not fully incorporated, was that it was numbers matter, right? You know, it's like I worked at a newspaper. If two people die on the highway, it's never a story, right? If 17 people die, that's a story, right? A murder, you know, in a, you know is not a story. Somebody who murders five people is a big story, right? There's a way in which there's a law of numbers. And so what it seems like they had learned from, from New Orleans and, and, and uh, Memphis, these 1866 massacres, was that you could get away with killing a lot of people individually in small towns, but you couldn't leave a pile of bodies, right? Eventually, that would create. Now, Colfax proves that's not really true all the time. Um, but it's this sort of idea of what is actually going to get people's attention, an individual outrage or something that somehow there's something about numbers that creates an exponential effect upon people. It's an interesting question. Ellen. Back to that point, um, in the head of this, this was sort of a draft of a pamphlet, and that item was omitted in the funny. That's right. Next to that one. So I think that speaks to what you know, Kevin Dunn is saying, that they're starting to get a little smarter about you don't distribute a pamphlet that says go around killing people, but clearly that's privately right. the understanding of, you know, of what they're trying to accomplish and what they need to do. Yeah. You, you probably could get away with mass killings, though, even up until about the 1980s. <coughs> I mean, the, the media played such a role in stopping um, the attacks on African-Americans in the South. So, I mean, this was like the status quo. All these guys were in bed together, pretty much, right. for lack of better terms. So, I mean, newspaper reporters and sheriffs and, and you know, these supporters, these Confederate, former Confederate officers or whatever, um, they supported these mass killings. So, I mean, right. this type of information just didn't even make, probably even make it to the, to the North. I mean, certainly there's reason to think this. There's also, this is sort of also an interesting way in which politics comes to matter, which is the Times, for example, is a, is, a, is a conservative paper. It's a paper that's skeptical of emancipation all the way through. It's from the beginning saying, cut back, cut back, cut back. We don't want a big reconstruction. But the Times is a Republican paper. And this is part of what the payoff that these union leagues and people like Henry Adams, why they thought it mattered to be voters is not because they thought politicians, even black politicians, were virtuous people, but that if you're a voter, in some way you're going to matter to somebody in Washington, not out of justice, but out of mathematics. And so even the Times, right, a very conservative paper during this period, but when these massacres happen, they cover them. Why? Maybe not because they're full of a sense of the nobility of humankind or a sense of racial egalitarianism, but because it's an attack on the Republican Party. And so that in this sense, you can build in this sense that there is all these sort of reservoirs of you know, racism, of coldness, and also while blacks are a major part of the Republican Party, that's going to create, even among conservative Republicans, an interest in making sure they win, even if it stops at that.
funny because I'm looking at the uh, the cartoon photo again, and we didn't touch on the lady that's actually in the back. Right. Um, she has a look of fear that I believe is much different from maybe 25, 50 years ago when she was probably um, current. People were enslaved. Now she's just scared for her own life, just right. to grieve. Before you had to be scared of being sold right. or whatever else, or having your children torn from your side, rape, whatever it may be. But now those worries may be somewhat starting to diminish, but she has an increased fear of just living now. Right. Now, now, now it's death. Right. Right. So you have a period of reconstruction where land is um, a hot commodity, but now your life has become dispensable. Right. Less than. It's even worse for her mm -hmm. than for other members because. Um, Without the without the man, she can't. She has less rights than him. Right. If she's not a slave anymore, then I mean, she just become extremely useless. Then they take him away. So now she's just by herself with the kids. Right. She's just as good as dead. Right. Now it's a very interesting question, which is about what are, you know, so what would freedom mean to people, right? What is it that you know, without taking away that not being sold is a big deal and being able to marry, you know, is a big deal. That there are also these enormous constraints put on what freedom means to people very quickly. And that there's no question that if in that calculus we just walked through, I said, you know, a black person was a voter, but that's not true. A black man was a voter. And so this sort of sense, even if you're talking about a reservoir of northern public opinion among Republicans who say, you know, we're not going to let Republicans be shot because that's going to cut down our number of votes, women don't count. Sense. Women's voting rights are on the table in Reconstruction. They're debated in Kansas. They're debated um, during the amendments. They're debated at a bunch of free people's conventions. But women's suffrage, although it starts to happen in Western states soon after the war, um, doesn't come in as a national as a national issue until World War. It doesn't make it through nationally until the end of World War One, until the 19th Amendment. And then there's also a question that uh, Deborah raises, which is about violence. Slavery was predicated upon violence. Right? It was enforced through violence. And yet, the sense that people have, that scholars have, is that murder of one's own slaves was relatively rare. In many states, it was against the law, though the laws were very rarely enforced. But there was a simpler reason why people didn't go around killing their own slaves. The same reason they don't go around killing their own horses. Or their, you know, they, was, they, were, they had value in them. Doesn't mean they treated them well. It doesn't mean that they saw them. It can be you know, the opposite. Emancipation changes that dynamic. And it unleashes an enormous amount of a different type of violence, rather than the sort of violence of everyday you know, domination of these sort of extraordinary acts of violence. And lynching, for example, happened in the South before the war, but almost exclusively to whites. Right? Why would whites lynch a slave? If they lynch a slave, who's going to come and complain to them? The slave's owner. And in fact, slaves could and often did sue other whites for killing their slaves. They had made a property damage against them. It's the lynching of blacks starts to come, not really during Reconstruction, but in the 1880s. And it skyrockets in the 1890s and 1900s in this sort of unleashing of a different type of violence. Um, in some ways, and even perhaps in some ways, an even more sadistic type of violence um, that, uh, that, that comes to define you know, the period really you know, thinking about the 1880s, after the quashing of political rights. Um, is when you see the start of lynching. So it's an interesting, it's a, and this also then helps to explain part of the reason why things like 
union leagues, and black organizations are themselves organized upon military grounds. That they are political organizations and they're also self-defense organizations. And it does point toward there's a famous um, set of 20, early 20th century massacres of, of, of Atlanta, which Walter White, who goes on to be president of the NAACP, um, is, uh, experiences as a young boy and, and, and produces a memoir about. And in Tulsa, at these early 20th century, and then in Chicago at the end of the war, these early 20th century massacres um, that highlight some of the ironies of what we talked about of Henry Adams' dream, which is if the dream is that escaping the South is going to mean escaping these issues. Um, and if there's no doubt that many of the exodusters in particular at first find these sort of small towns they create in Kansas to be havens, in the end is the question of how much of these problems or these issues or these forms of repression going to follow them. And so this will be, you know, sort of the, the sort of way in which the migration, you know, demonstrates how little people felt protected during this period in the South. And the problems of the 20th century will in part sort of speak to this question of how little does migration, you know, how much does migration do or how much do these issues follow you uh, once you leave. So it's uh, certainly very important. John O. Franklin wrote a bit about experiencing in his memoir um, this massacre in his, in his memoir when he was a young boy in, in, uh, in Tulsa. Um, and Ellison wrote about it, um, though he was in a different part of Oklahoma. 